whenever there is an inordinate amount of power given to one person over a, a large denomination of other people, there's a potential for abuse. In, in the IFB, there's one pastor that kind of leads everything and they're called the man of God. So when you have the person who's the man of God and everything he says is essentially taken as gospel by everybody else, he's also your spiritual guru. He has a lot of power and attention and kind of freedom to to rule and reign over your family and and yourself. And so, you know, the, the conversations come up a lot. Like, do I think, do I think churches create abusers. I think there's a lot of pastors that aren't. So it's kind of tricky to say that, yes, it's always the church culture that creates it. But I will say that a position like being the quote unquote man of God is a, it's a super electromagnetic force pulling narcissists and abusers and people who do want to wield power. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to University of Adversity. This is your first time tuning in. Welcome to the family. All you regular listeners, welcome back. If you guys haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this. And keep in mind, if you do get value from this, share this in your Instagram story. Or if you feel called to do so, leave us a review on Apple. It's always greatly appreciated. Helps grow the show, helps build awareness. And we love you for it. Today's guest, he is best described as a storyteller. He is deeply passionate about raising awareness of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent Baptist churches and is currently producing a documentary on the subject. His accompanying podcast, Preacher Boys Podcast, launched in January 2020 and is, he, he quickly surpassed 200,000 downloads in just nine months. There's also more to him though. He has also spent the last seven years fulfilling various media production roles, including videographer, photographer, writer, and graphic designer. His work has taken him to over 20 states and 13 countries and has included a documentary film, an eight-episode miniseries, and several commercials. So we had a really powerful conversation today. We discussed... Um, sexual abuse that goes on in these independent Baptist churches. And I really um, admire this guy and, you know, the, the courage it takes to step up and talk about this stuff and give permission to others to do the same is really, really important. So today's guest, Eric Skorzynski is, you know, one of those guys, one of those warriors on the field that is stepping up to really talk about the uncomfortable truths and um, it, these conversations are so important at pushing the needle in the right direction for growth, you know, for people to be able to be comfortable about being vulnerable and expressing their truth about their life. So I highly recommend if you guys haven't go check out his podcast. Um, some of the content we talk about here, you know, may be sensitive for some ears. So if you're not into one of those kind of episodes, this episode might not be for you, but you know, we, you guys know that all these conversations always end from a place of empowerment 
we always want to leave you feeling empowered and to make better decisions in your life. So I really believe you guys will get a lot of value from this. So enjoy the episode. Also coming up, you guys, we have the University of Adversity Summit, May 21st till the 23rd. It's going to be very, very powerful weekend of transformation. We're going to have some of our past guests coming together for three weekends. And I'm going to be just rapid fire interviewing them back to back. We're going to have some um, different modality, healing modalities, breath work, meditations in between the different interviews. And it's going to be just my goal is to create a really, really powerful transformational weekend. And this is going to be the first time we do it. It's going to be virtual. We have some headline speakers, Dan Fleischman, Amber Lee Lago, Danelle Delgado, Shay Robottom, some really awesome people that have been on the show and are just growing, you know, online and um, in the space and in the expert fields that they are and how adversity shows up in their life. So it's going to be, it's going to be great. We're going to wide range of different audience of different people that are doing amazing things. So we're bringing them all together. And I think you guys will love it. If you guys want to find out more about that, go to the website, lanceecos.com or go to my Instagram, lance.ecos and check it out. Also, Follow me on all those social media platforms if you're not already. Always posting content and stay on top of the podcast. So enjoy the episode. Eric Skorzynski coming right up. Eric, we're making this happen. How you doing, brother? Thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> I'm I'm glad to be here. It's it's been uh it's been a little crazy trying to get this scheduled. I know we're both uh, we're both taking on more than we can chew on a lot of this stuff. So it's good to be yeah. here finally. Yeah, brother. You know, we were we were connected, you know, not too long ago, and I was really you know, we were connected about podcasting and talking about some stuff. And then, you know, I started to hear about your story and your podcast and, you know, definitely back in my mind, I was like, shit, I got to get this guy on because this is, you know, there's a, we talk about a lot of things on the show, you know, sometimes we go deeper than others. And I really believe that this is an important conversation to be had. And yeah, man, I'm really excited to have you kind of share it because you know, a lot of people will see people in certain areas on social media and they won't really know because they're doing other things also, but they won't really know the human behind what they're doing. And I know that this is, this is a huge part of your story. So, um, I would love if you could take us back, man, walk us through your journey. Um, you know, what was it like for you growing up and walk us through that, man. Yeah, I was I was born and raised within a religious denomination called the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement. Um, I'll call it the IFB for short. That's kind of the common nickname. It's it's a lot shorter than Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement. Every time I mention it, mm. but uh, growing up in the IFB, it was a very conservative kind of Christian world. You don't dance, don't smoke, don't drink, don't go to movie theaters, don't watch R-rated movies, don't listen to music that has a beat. Like it was very very conservative, very strict. And uh, I, I was a staff kid. So my dad was a, my dad was a principal and a teacher still is. My mom uh, was a teacher and I spent my entire life from born to, you know, 18 years old going to school and church, you know, seven days a week on this one building on this kind of, you know, couple acre property uh, in Banning, California. And so I just grew up in a very, very small religious bubble and uh, it, it, that bubble uh, and that feeling of safety and, you know, kind of religious superiority burst uh, when we had a sexual predator 
transitioned from another church and relocated to our church. And, um, you know, I found that out. I was the first one to find out I was a 16 year old, you know, just Googled the name and, and came across all these articles and, you know, going to all of the leaders I trusted and grown up with and trying to say like, Hey, this is a big deal. We need to address this. We need to do something about this. Like he's here. No one knows this. I was met with a lot of indifference at best. And then, you know, anger for me, bringing it up at worst. And it kind of rattled me and sent me down this rabbit hole of just researching the movement I grew up in and finding out that, you know, the sexual abuse, the cover-ups, the scandals was kind of commonplace. Like the anomalies were the ones where this stuff wasn't happening. And so it was a, it was a pretty big rattling experience for me faith-wise. And, you know, just as a person who spent all his time in this little isolated bubble, like I didn't know things outside of that, that world. Mm. That's the, that's the short version. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, what did you, what about you specifically though? Hmm. Yeah. Like as far as my experience in it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, my experience, like I really, uh, I mean, there was a couple, there's a couple defining things for me. So like I, I grew up very much, like I said, in a bubble. So like I had a lot of trust in the denomination we were in, like, to me, it was like, we're the church, we're right. Everyone else is wrong. You know, I, I grew up, you know, I had a very close relationship. Like I was a good kid, you know, from the outside look in, I was always hanging out at the church. I was there literally seven days a week. You know, I hung out with my youth pastor for fun, like not, you know, not just going to church. Like I just, I lived and breathed the church experience. And so um, there, there were two kind of defining factors that really affected me. And I honestly don't talk about, the first much at all. Um, but when I was around probably second grade or so, um, there was a guy that we picked up for church that, that, you know, essentially, I mean, over the clothes, but molested me. And, um, it was, a it was something that I never talked about. Didn't tell my wife about it. She had asked me when I was doing the show, did this happen? You know, did anything ever happen to you? And I, I always said no. Um, and ended up, you know, ended up about two years ago, just kind of breaking down and telling her what happened. And in the grand scheme of things, trauma therapists always say, don't compare, but it's, it's human. We do it. Like I look and say, compared to some of the stories of people I've talked to, it really wasn't a huge thing. I mean, it, it was a big thing, but it was something that I just, it doesn't register to me as being this horrific thing comparatively to a lot of other stories. And some people may process it differently. That's, that's fine. Um, but for me, what really affected me is that I was at a really young age and communicated, I thought to my family what had happened, but felt like nothing had ever happened. Like I felt like nothing ever, nothing, nothing ever was dealt with. Like no one ever took it seriously. And now as an adult, I recognize I probably just didn't communicate it very well as what, as to what happened and probably didn't share exactly what, what took place in, in the right way. And so, um, you know, but that, that feeling of betrayal and feeling like it wasn't dealt with seriously did factor in when the second half of this story happened. When I found out that there was a predator moved to our church, like it just compounded where it was like, man, now my youth pastor doesn't even care about this guy being here. Like then I'm also going like, did my parents care that this happened to me? Which, you know, again, now I know that they definitely would have, they didn't understand at the time, but like all of that compounded in addition to it all being tied to my spiritual and my personal life. Like all of it was one big messy package. And so for me, like I would say that the first 16 years of my life were marked with just 
devout obedience and submission to this world. And then I would say the last two years of actually growing up in it was just this feeling of betrayal and loss, like and loss in the sense of I lost what I thought was my home, you know, my religious home, my community of people, my, my, you know, my brethren in the church context. Like it was a very, it was a very damaging and something that like I was hesitant to say traumatic, but it really was, it was a really traumatic experience for me kind of growing up in that world and then having it just kind of fall apart in the matter of two years. What kind of, did you suffer from any addictions from that trauma later on that you could identify with? You know what? Not, not, I don't know how much, I mean, it's hard, right? Cause everything is so holistic, you know, like, I don't know. Um, I would say I, I the, the only thing I've ever, like, there was never like drugs, alcohol, anything like that. I would say like, I did have a pretty strong pornography addiction leaving, um, and I'm comfortable saying addiction, like leaving the movement and even up, I mean, even up till a couple of years ago, I mean, like very recently, like it was, it was strong. I think a lot of that was fueled, um, you know, obviously sexuality was very, very restrictive. The conversation was fairly non-existent. Um, you know, my parents were better than most, but it was still pretty, it was still pretty quiet as far as the conversation went. And so growing up in a restrictive, restrictive religious environment, my first exposure was through a friend, you know, never talked to anybody about it. And it was, it was just something that, you know, that was always this thing that was just ramping up in the background. So it's very restricted in what we talk about, understand, have healthy conversations about. And then my main consumption understanding about sexuality was all this extremely unhealthy, you know, kind of unrestricted access to porn. And so that was the only thing I could say was like an addictive thing uh, kind of grew up, but I don't know how much of that is rooted in. I, I wouldn't say any of that was rooted in like a traumatic experience. I definitely think, when, when I was stressed or when I was feeling extra anxious, I would go to that as an outlet, but I don't know that it was like a cause and effect, you know, thing. Like if it came from that. Yeah. The, the pornography thing is really interesting because it's so programmed in our society as well. Mm -hmm. And it's so, it changes our brains, man. Like when we go on these, Oh apps, yeah. Like it's, it's fucking crazy what it does. And well, I, it's I, every, a lot of people are going through this stuff, man. It's like yeah. one of these things that need to be talked about more. Well, and, and I'm, I mean, I'm 26. So like, I, I, I'm fearful for, you know, I have a three-year-old now, like how much access, but like, I look at it, I'm like, I was fourth, fifth grade where like I had access to the internet, you know, like pretty casually, you know, and it's, it's crazy to me. Like, because I, I talk to people who are just in their 30s, you know, and they're going, yeah, the only way we would ever see anything is if we found a magazine. And it's yeah. like, man, I can't even relate to that because I'm going like, I could, on my PlayStation Portable, I could, you know, as a kid, I could mm. pull up anything I wanted to. And so could my friends. And so, you know, like, so you've got this very restrictive environment where they're saying, don't look at porn, don't lust, don't do this. And you're, you're pulling in all that guilt about feeling any kind of sexual desire, but then you're also have this really unhealthy outlet for dealing with it and educating yourself on it. So it's this kind of cartwheel of like, you know, okay, I'm consuming like, I mean, really awful, you know, imagery and things that a, a kid should not be seeing. And then I'm also processing it through this lens of just immediate guilt and shame and like damnation. It's like, it was just this never ending shame. And then 
outlet for the shame and then back to shame. It was a really, it was a really horrific thing and very hard to rewire your brain to not need that. It's like any addiction to not need that and replace it with something else or to, you know, to kind of close that gap a little bit. Did you find when you transitioned out of, are you still involved with the church or have you transitioned out completely? I'm, I still identify as a Christian, but I'm, I'm not associated in any way with the independent Baptist right. world of it. I'm, I'm pretty, I feel like a man without a country in a lot of ways. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, but I'm, I'm far outside that, that world for sure. Mm. What I'm curious about is what's come to me is around when you're leaving something like that, the amount of shame that you feel when you start to do the things you weren't allowed to do before. Mm, yeah. you know, did that, did that surface? Did you feel, you know, because reality, most people are doing these things and you probably mm -hmm. felt some sort of emotional response. Like it's a bad thing to be just doing the mm -hmm. things that we do in society. How did shame show up for you in that? And how did you get through it? Yeah. For, for me, like it wasn't because I kind of left on such a, kind of brutal experience. You know, I had left kind of getting shunned a little bit, like just my youth pastor, you know, kind of cut ties a little bit. Like there was a lot of things that just kind of fell apart. It made it kind of easier to, to kind of branch out into the other side of things. And so I think for me, when I left the movement, I was kind of like, you know, I was in that kind of screw this mentality, you know, like this is crazy. And like, I'm out of this. But I still did bring a lot of that, like about drinking or about, you know, all these different things. I just had this weird, like kind of stigma around. And, you know, I think for me, it hasn't been so much working myself into being okay with some of that. It's been more of like making sure that whatever I do is not to spite that because a lot of people leave restrictive religious environments and just fly to this other extreme, which is usually not healthy either. Extremes are never, are rarely healthy, right? Like going to an extreme on either side of that's pretty rough. But like what I've wanted to be very intentional about is like, I'm not going to go order a beer when I'm out with my parents just to prove a point. I want right. to order a beer because I want to drink a beer, you know? And like, and I'm also not going to not drink a beer because of what someone may think. Like it's, it's, it's that balance of like, am I doing this for me and my family and for my friends, and like my life that I want, or am I doing this? Because if I'm doing it just to spite the religious environment I came from, I'm still in bondage to that religious environment. You know, if I, if I'm doing what they want, or if I'm doing things just to prove them wrong, both of those things are in service to them. And I want to be in service to myself and my family and doing what I like living in accordance with what I actually believe now. Dude, that's a really great point for everybody listening to look at everything in life. Why are you doing it? You know, why are you posting that on social media? Is it to get a right. reaction or is it to inspire people? You know, why are you going to drink? Is it a diversion or mm. is it to celebrate? You know, there's so many ways that you can do yeah. these things. And I think that's a really important point is that self-awareness in itself. It's like, what, yeah. why do we choose the things we do and what is the reason behind it? Yeah. I was just out with, uh, I was actually just out with a friend of mine. Um, uh, and we were, we were sitting out with some friends that are in the IFB world, you know, still like kind of fringe of it. And we walked away for the meal and we both hadn't ordered anything to drink. Like usually if we go out together, we'll grab like a beer or something or whiskey. And we left and he's like, he's like, I didn't order one because I felt like I only wanted to order one just to kind of like jab at him a little bit. And I was like, yeah, the same here. Like, so we both had that same kind of conversation of going like, we know we, the only reason like at 
10 30 in the morning were like kind of wanting to order something is because it would kind of make a jab or a poke. And like, you have to have that mental understanding of going like, why am I doing this? Like, what's the subconscious reasoning for, for what action I'm doing? So. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing. And I think that, yeah, I mean, the self-awareness is so important with everything we do, man. Um, so, okay. I want to, I want to pivot a little bit and I want to go deeper here. I want to go, I want to, I want to go into, <laughs> okay. I want to go. go deeper into, you know, your podcast, preacher boy podcast. And I want to talk about some of the stuff that is going on hmm. and how much it's happening. So like, cause I've heard about sexual abuse happening in churches and, you know, we've heard about it a lot and it's a very uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. Like even talking about it, I'm like, oh, do I even want to go there? I'm like, if that's how I feel, that means we got to go there. Right. Mm, yeah. And I just, for people that don't really understand how often this stuff happens, like, you know, tell us a little bit more about this world and how the, some of the stories that you've come across and, you know, how often is this sexual abuse happening? No. And tell, talk us a little bit about that, man. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it is a hard conversation, right? Because I think people, even people who aren't, don't identify as Christian church is kind of viewed as a safe space, right? Like right. you don't, it, it's, you don't want to hear about things happening in churches or schools or places that are universally considered like a safe place or a haven, especially for kids. And the reality is it does happen a lot. And I can kind of dive into the reason that it does ha tend to happen in a lot of churches, but yeah, the, the, the desire to start the podcast was just that. Um, it was that it was happening so much, but getting talked about so little. Uh, the Catholic Church has gotten, you know, sure the Boston Globe did an, uh, or the Chicago Tribune did a, or, yeah, Boston Globe did a, a great, um, you know, piece on it. Like there's been reporting, some books done on it, but like the independent Baptist world, really not much has been done outside of a couple one-off news articles. And so the reason I started was simply, I wanted someone to consistently report on what was happening, the effects of it on, you know, survivors and kind of try to understand the pieces that allow it to happen. And so the reason it happens in churches is the same reason it happens in businesses or it happens in fortune 500 companies, or it happens in medical institutions. Like whenever there is an inordinate amount of power given to one person or two people and over a, a large denomination of other people, there's a potential for abuse. Um, when you go into a church context, uh, especially you know, when you have one in, in the IFB, there's one pastor that kind of leads everything and they're called the man of God. So when you have the person who's the man of God and everything he says is essentially taken as gospel by everybody else, um, that gives him a lot of power because he's got not only your uh, attention as a leader, he's also your spiritual guru. He's also the person who maybe married you in a, in a church setting. He, he conducted your wedding. He, you know, maybe baptized your kids. Like he has a lot of power and attention and kind of freedom to, to rule and reign over your family and, and yourself. And so, you know, the, the conversations come up a lot. Like, do I think, do I think churches create abusers? there's a conversation to be had there. And I, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of pastors that aren't, so it's kind of tricky to say that, yes, it's always the church culture that creates it. But I will say that a position like being the quote unquote man of God is a 
it's a super electromagnetic force pulling narcissists and abusers and people who do want to wield power. Um, I, I kind of break it down. It's the same way you see the cops kind of play out in two ways. Like we have this idea, like are all cops bad? Of course not. But when you have a role where you get to exert a lot of force and dominance over other people, it makes sense why some people that go to police academies and go want to put on a uniform is because they want to exert that power over somebody else. Mm. You'll also get the people that desperately want a position where they can serve graciously and care for other people, but you're going to draw those two extremes. You're going to draw the very selfless heroic person and the narcissistic abuser in equal measure. Like you're going to, you're going to always draw people to those positions of power uh, every single time. And so, yeah, it does happen in churches a lot, but it's, it's because the power dynamics first and foremost, especially in the IFB, when you've got one man running the show, if you get the wrong man in that position, it's going to be a pretty rough show. Can you explain, okay, I know you kind of touched on it, but can you explain IFB more in depth, uh, how much different it is than like a regular church? Because I have, I, I don't really know a lot about it. I know a lot of people probably don't either. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it looks very similar, right? You've got a pastor, you've got a congregation, things like that. There's a couple of key doctrines that really separate them. And one of them is called the doctrine of separation. And so the doctrine of separation is that you don't affiliate with people who are not of like faith. So you don't associate with other independent Baptists, like, or, or with other people who aren't independent Baptists. So the IFB would not hang out with the Southern Baptist convention, you know, or the American Baptist convention or, or any of these groups, like they are isolated. They would hang out with anybody, even if they shared the same core doctrines, like you have to be IFB and they have a whole level of like first degree separation, second degree, it gets pretty, but they're, they're built, their movements built on the idea of separation. So Number one, that's a little bit of a red flag <laughs> when you can't yeah. get any kind of outside input. Um, you know, when you can't read from, you know, the, the Bible colleges within that movement will restrict you from reading people who are outside the IFB. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, as Stephen Hassan, who's a cult expert, would say, there's a lot of behavioral control, information control. Uh, there is a ton of, uh, you know, uh, th there's a, a thought control. Uh, and I think it's environmental control, but there's, there's control over every area of your life um, in the sense of what you read, what you listen to, what kind of pastors you'll listen to, what Bible version you'll read. So they'll only read the King James Bible. Uh, they won't accept like an English standard version or a uh, new American standard Bible. Like everything is like, it's our way of doing it. Like this is our specific methodology. Um, and then the other piece of that would be, uh, you know, like the singular leadership. So it's one pastor. Uh, most churches um, will run with a with a, a multitude of elders. Like they'll have, you know, a pastoral staff. So they'll have multiple pastors, or they'll have, um, you know, uh, like in the Catholic Church, you'll have like a kind of hierarchy of like leaders. So there's not one person kind of running the show. But within an independent Baptist church, you have a pastor who's the final decision maker, and then you have deacons that help kind of support the pastor. Um, and so it's very much like, it's like a King, you know, if you have a good King, you won't really feel this, but if you have a bad King or an abusive King, it, it has, it's very easy for them to just kind of run and control everything. Um, and so that's kind of the two big things would be just the amount of authority given to the pastor. And then the immense amount of separation over 
as many issues as you can think of music. Like there's, there's literally churches that won't affiliate with another church because their music is different than theirs or their, their style is different or they, they use screens and not hymn books. Like it can get, it can get very, very splintered very quickly. What I don't understand is that they're so strict at the rules yet they're doing something that is so against what they're promoting. I don't understand that why they why that happens if they're so strict on everything yeah yeah it, i mean it doesn't make any I, sense I sit, I sit here trying to make sense of it as well i think i think again two things i think it's not so much about the principles i think it's about the power so i think it's i think it's more about it's not really about you know hymn books versus uh music on the screen or it's not very it's not really about you know how long a girl's skirt is like you know, it's about controlling all those details, you know? And so I think, I think first and foremost, I don't think it's a theology thing. I think it's just a power. It's a power thing. It's a power grab. So that's one level of it. And then I would also say there's probably some level of it. That's a distraction, you know, like you, uh, I always joke, like pastors preach loud enough or pastors preach loudest about the thing that they don't do. And so most, most, uh, it's the reason most churches will hammer, you know, uh, abortion or gay marriage because they're usually a guy. So they don't have to worry about abortion and they're usually, you know, a straight guy. So they're not worried about same sex marriage, but you won't hear a lot of Baptist pastors preach about gluttony, you know, because they love going to the buffet on Sunday. So, um, you know, a lot of times you'll see that deflection. And that's why you look at, a, you know, the Jack Hiles, who was one of the biggest founders of the movement. He had a pretty open affair, like pretty obvious affair, but would rail against people that used a different translation of the Bible. So like a lot of that, I think is just deflection. Like, let's talk about these issues and not deal with anything that hits close to that home, that home territory. With these kind of ideologies growing up with them, how challenging has it been for you in your judgment of others? Yeah. I, I, yeah. But pretty, pretty difficult. I think the biggest thing that I noticed, uh, cause I worked, uh, I worked my first secular job, um, in 2016 or 17, 2017, that was my first secular job. So first time working with, with coworkers who were like non-Christian. And um, the biggest thing I noticed immediately was one, the stereotype that they knew of Christians from that they'd worked with before was very negative. So like their response was like, oh, we were nervous when we hired you, you know, because we thought you'd be a jerk like the last guy. Because the last guy was your cliched, like he was out when they would host like the voting at their at their, um, at their company. And they would do like, they would host like where people could come in and cast their vote at the polls. Like he would walk around and be like, are you voting for this? Are you voting for that? Like he was just very preachy and just, arrogant, you know? And so that was the biggest piece of feedback I got was you're not a jerk, which I was like, that's good. I'm glad I'm getting that feedback. But the second thing I noticed was when I grew up in the independent Baptist movement, every relationship I had outside the church was very transactional. Like my ultimate goal when I would sit down with somebody was not to really care how they were doing. Like, yes, there's elements of that, but it wasn't, how are you doing? How's your family? How's this? My question that I was working toward was always, if you were to die today, are you a hundred percent sure that you know you're on your way to heaven? Like it was always, I want to convert them to be like me. 
Like I want to convert you, convert you, convert you. So like this conversation, you know, we'd be sitting here talking and we'd, you know, we'd get done and I would have to find some angle to say, so, you know, are you a Christian or Hey, do you believe in this? And look, I still am a Christian. Like I still believe in the gospel. Like I still, and so like, but, but my, my conversations are not transactional. Like my conversations are about building a relationship and helping serve you. And you know what, if you ever ask me, Hey, you know, you talk about this, like, what does this mean for you? Or what, like, it's going to be a more natural approach than me cramming something into someone's face. And so that's been really, that's honestly been very freeing is it transitioned my mindset from going, when I was in the movement, they would literally say like, if you could witness somebody, somebody and you don't, and they die, like their blood is on your hands. Like they would say things like that. That was like, as a kid, you're like, oh my God, like I had a, you know, I have to figure this out. But having this freedom now to build real relationships, genuinely care about people, genuinely invest in people with no agenda is incredibly freeing. And that, that's that been the hardest thing to kind of transition out of is that transactional relationships versus true, honest, caring, and empathetic relationships with people. Yeah. And I mean, that must help you in business also, because you're just, it doesn't always have to be a sell, sell, sell. So many yeah. people get that wrong. So what a right. great lesson for you as well though, right? Yeah. It's not that it's the, the people always talk about don't sell with desperation, you know, like don't sell in a sense of like, I need this right now. Um, it's the same thing with relationships is like when you're always cranking up this pressure to like convert, 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 you know, do this, do this, do this. Like you're essentially just doing really hard sales tactics on somebody constantly. Like you're at family Christmas. You're like, well, you know, just praying for you. Hope you'll, you know, convert soon. And you know, it sounds so reasonable when you're in that world, but then like, I think about me, I'm like, if, if I had had, which I did, if I had an atheist in the family that was trying to constantly get me to like, leave my faith, I wouldn't, I would have reacted the same way they were to me. Like, I would have been like, no, are you crazy? Like, let's just enjoy Thanksgiving, you know, like let's, let's just hang out and get to know each other. But yeah, it is. It's this desperate, like, we need to close this deal right now everything is writing on this right now, you know, like that, that's a very, it's not good for you as an individual. And it's not good for your relationships at all. Yeah. So important. So with, when you have these conversations with, you know, people on your show, I just want to acknowledge like how, how great this work is that you do and how important it is because sometimes it, you know, you probably don't get the credit that you deserve because people being able to share their story is so healing. Mm. And I only know that because they accidentally happened to me with this podcast, right? People open up and share. I share. I'm like, Holy shit, I'm healing. Like from yeah. all the crazy stuff I went through, the more I share, the more I heal on a level of, I don't know what it does, man, but it, and it gives others permission to share. And it's like, Oh, they're just like me. I'm just like you. Oh, okay. We're all together on this. Like we're all, we're all doing our best to heal. And what I love about what you're doing is you're offering people that opportunity, that invitation to share, right. Yeah. To heal. So how has that journey impacted you? And is there any yeah. specific story that really hit home for you? That was like, wow, that was, that was like impactful. And just to kind of keep that fire fueling within you. Yeah. I mean, the big, the biggest thing for me, I mean, it's hard to 
pick one because I'm I'm like yeah. 120 episodes in of of these stories. And that's just the stories that actually get recorded. Like I get, right. I get my inbox. I'm sure yours does as well. My inbox explodes with like tons of stories of, of these situations. It's been really impactful and, and getting to hear from people, you know, I've, I've talked with people who, you know, I mean, have been through the worst. I, I just talked to someone yesterday. I said, I'm so sorry that we had to meet like this, but like I'm meeting people having a conversation about the most horrific chapter of their life and how it affected them. And then saying goodbye, you know, and so it's, it's, it's very, it's very heavy stuff, but it's, it's also the, the reason it's very powerful is that I have people who, you know, for 20, 30 years sat with this thing. You know, I talked with someone yesterday who, you know, experienced abuse as a, as a teenager, uh, you know, for three years by the hands of a sibling, you know, and they didn't share that with anyone. And that was their family until they were 30 years old. Um, they didn't share that with me until, you know, 10, 15 years later than that. So like, this is someone here who's around 40 and has held this secret their entire life. And now they're sharing it and getting to help. Like they said at the end, if this helps one person who went through something like me, it's worth it. And so like, for me, it's really cool seeing when it's, you can see that weight come off the shoulders of like, okay, I'm talking about it. This happened. I get to share my story. But then you always like nine times out of 10, the conversation ends with them saying, I just hope this helps somebody. Like, I hope this helps the little girl who's scared to, sh- to say something or the little boy that's scared to say something or the person who was like me. I hope that they can hear this and know they're not alone. Like that to me is what's been amazing. And it's been cool seeing it's bittersweet, but now there's this community of thousands of people that are all supporting each other in sharing these stories that are horrific and, and, and awful but knowing you're not alone makes it a lot easier to kind of work through this. So yeah, it's, that's, what's motivated me and fueled me is every time I do an episode, I'll get four or five emails from somebody saying that felt like you just recorded my story. Like that literally feels word for word, like what I went through and it's, it's equal measure heartbreaking and also extremely exciting because you've got this level of like, man, I, I hate that this is relevant to anybody. I, ha- I hate that this show connects with anyone, but I'm glad that all these people that felt alone for 30, 40 years now have an outlet to, to kind of share. Man, you're creating something that's so healing for people because people think that their story is so unique and that nobody will understand them. Yeah. Everybody's seeking permission. Right. Well, that's what, that's what I felt when I started the show is I started the show with the intent, you know, I I mean, initially I mean, the show was an afterthought. Initially I was like, man, I'm going to, I want to do a documentary on this. So I kind of just threw out a test in the water, say anyone care about this. And I was hoping I could find three people that would be willing to share. And like the next day I had 20 messages from people going like, just saw this. I want to be interviewed. And so I was like, I got to do a podcast because there's, I got to fit all 20 of these people. And now, like I said, I'm 120 episodes in, it's not slowing down. Um, And so, you know, it, it gave me, like, I was asking permission after growing up in it, after seven years, after having left, just sitting with it and just going like, I wish somebody would do something like, me saying anything publicly, like seeing that flood of responses gave me the permission to talk about things that, like I said, I didn't think they were big trauma points for me, but then being able to work through it, like I understand how much it really did affect me and how much I needed to talk about it. And it's been, it's been probably more healing for me than anything that I've ever done in my entire life. 
Um, and which is crazy because I expected it to be this, you know, this kind of painful thing to dig into, which it, it has been, but it's also been incredibly healing. Like it's, it's allowed me to talk about things that I I've held in for a long time. How do you get people to open up to such a deep, dark place? What's your, what's your strategy with that? Because that is probably one of the most um, difficult things for people to do. People don't realize when you're doing interviews and conversations is like the ability to have people break down that shell so that you can connect. And it's not yeah. an easy thing. Some people know how to do it really well. Some people don't. What's your strategy? How do you do that? Um, I mean, two things. One, it's gotten easier as the show's gone because people know, you know, they kind of know what to expect. I would say the biggest thing when you're talking with people who've experienced trauma specifically is kind of identifying beforehand, like what's the areas they will shut down on. So like, what's the things? So like, I, I always ask a simple question. I just say, is there anything you absolutely don't want to talk about? Like, is there anything? And that's why I told you when we got on, I said, I'm an open book, ask me anything. Cause I'm at a point where I'm comfortable. If you would have asked me, like, if you would have asked me like a year ago, I would have probably given you two things that I would have said, no, I'm not ready to, but like right now I'm ready to be open, talk about it. Um, you know? And so I just define very clearly, what are the boundaries? And then once those boundaries are set, like I know I can go, you know, I can't go over here. I can't go over here, but in this topic, we can go as deep as we need to go and like really get talking about it. And also a lot of it's just to, like, you know, we talk about IQ versus EQ. It's that emotional intelligence to, to pick up on something. Uh, and this is just an interviewing tip for anybody who does that kind of stuff is so often interviewers drag their guests through questions and um, you know, they'll, they're like a motorboat, you know, they want to just zip through and hit here's question one, question two, question three. And, you know, if, if a guest says something and says, you know, Hey, my, you know, yeah, it was really what, what my dad told me, you know, that really changed the course of everything, you know, a bad interviewer goes, okay, fantastic. That's amazing. How was college for you? You know, and a good interviewer is going to say like, we might not get to college, but like, so what did your dad tell you? Why was that so impactful in that part of your life? Yeah. Like what, what hit you there? And so like that, that to me is the kind of powerful thing. It's not dragging someone through their story, but letting them tell their story the way that they want to tell it. And I'm along the, the, the way like Travis Chapel, our mutual friend, he talks about, I'm that river tour guide, just making sure we don't hit a rock and the conversation doesn't freeze, mm -hmm. but like, we're going to get through this conversation together and see what the guest wants to talk about. And so that's been some of my best interviews have been like, they came on to talk about one thing and we end up going down this whole other track, you know, like that's, that ends up being very powerful. I can completely relate with you on that, man. And it's really just intuitively knowing where, where you're going to go. Like you just kind of flow and there you're absolutely right. Like if you're so married to your questions, it's going to throw mm -hmm. off your whole flow. Yeah. And it's like, sometimes you just can't get to that question, you know, just right. let it go. And it's so important. And I just think it's, it's such a, um, having somebody be able to open up is such a, such an honor. Like I, I am so grateful to have anybody trust me enough to share their story. Mm. And I, I want to just be a mirror, you know, I just want to be a, a reflection and just help, you know, amplify that because people want to share it. It's just sometimes they don't feel 
they don't feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, like you said, it's giving permission. Mm. Like that's the thing too, is like, is like a lot of times with these stories, like people feel like no one wants to hear it or that they can't talk about it or it's too taboo. And so if you can set that standard, you know, and you can say, Hey, you know, I like even phrasing your questions, like, Hey, I know I went through this or I experienced this, like, did it affect you in a similar way? If you can let your guard down first, like it makes it a lot easier for the other person to know, like, Hey, I can do this. And just simply saying like, Hey, I'd love to hear your story. Like I have people reach out and they go like, okay, it's a lot though. Like, do you really want to hear everything? Yeah. Everything. I want to hear your story. Like it's your, um, I went long on an interview with someone the other day and they were like, Oh, I didn't realize I talked so much. I was like, that's the point is <laughs> the point is for you to get your story out and, uh, and share it the way that you feel it needs to be shared. And like the amount of gratefulness for that is just, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. That's, that's why it's been challenging for me to have a shorter podcast with <laughs> right. like topics like this. It's like, people are like, Oh, well, it should be like this. It should be like that. I'm like, I can't get somebody to open up and close it down and, and minimum 50 minutes. Like it's, yeah. it's, it doesn't feel authentic to me. And no. you know, the listeners may not listen all the way, but it's like for me to do what I need to do, it's like, there's a certain amount of trust there needs to mm-hmm. be there. And I guess the art of it is if you can get that out in the shortest period of time, great. Yeah. But that's challenging to do, right? Yeah. Well, and that's why you need to set that expectation at the beginning too. Like, what do you want? You know, I, even asking another variation of that is like, what, what do you hope to accomplish in this episode? Like, what's the message you want to get across? Because it might not be, you know, some of my guests might not, like I've had them reach out and they'll say like, oh, I experienced, you know, a, a rape at this age. But like, I really want to talk about, you know, the counseling that I went through and how harmful going to a bad counselor was for me. And like, so we'll spend, you know, a lot of time on that as opposed to like getting raw and real doesn't have to be getting nitty gritty into like the trauma. It might be something afterward that they're passionate about. So like the more you can lean into that, like, and accomplish what both of you want to accomplish with the episode, it's a lot, it's a lot easier. And it's been, it's, 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 it's like any other relationship. It takes a lot of learning. It takes a lot of learning how to communicate. And like, that's, if nothing else, I got to develop a lot of communication skills through the podcast and get to get to read a variety of people every single week. It's such a powerful personal development tool in itself. (laughs) You know, it's just, just to be able to process and just to speak, it's just so freeing and liberating. And it's, it's just one of the tools, you know, and especially when going through, when you have a challenging story in your life, and this will kind of take us to our next area here. I want to talk about is like other tools that people that you find are using to get through trauma. You know, after you have these conversations, you've obviously seen people light up and, or people gives them there that first, maybe the first opportunity to speak about it, maybe the second or third or whatever, but there's definitely something sparked. So I guess what I want to ask you is like, what, what are some of the things that these people are using to help get them through trauma? Is there some stuff on a daily basis, some tools that you'd recommend for somebody that may have gone through something like this that they can use? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, I've talked to people who do art therapy. I've talked to people who do, you know, more meditation, things like that. I I think for, I'll just say for me, like, honestly, the, the simplest thing for me has been taking walks. And I know that sounds super simple, but um, I went through a period of the show where 
I mean, I had a day where I was dealing with like three pretty big cases. They weren't even, they didn't even end up being episodes. I just was like kind of playing this concierge, hooking up someone with a lawyer. I was on the phone with lawyers and with, you know, trauma therapists and like trying to get people set up with resources they needed. And I was driving home and thought I was fine. Like I was like, I'm killing it today. I'm like helping a lot of people. This is great. And I got about five minutes from my house and pulled over and just like broke down, like crying. And I was like, this is so much weight. Like, I was like, this is tons of like, why has this happened to more than one person, let alone one person? I'm like, why are there so many people that are, that need help? And, you know, I, I, I did an interview with a trauma therapist that I'm friends with, and uh, it was kind of an excuse just to talk to her, to <laughs> talk to her myself. And she just said, she's like, what's your schedule look like? And I was like, well, I do interviews, you know, anytime during the day people want to, they're back to back. Sometimes I'll get on the phone. And she just said, you need to take time to process because right. What I was doing was I was just plowing through, like, I'll do six interviews. I'll do 10 conversations. I was literally on the phone. Like I, I was spending at least 40 hours a week, just in this world, probably more. And a lot of that was phone calls. And she's like, when you get, you know, when you schedule your interviews, pick, like do two a day, you know, spread them out. And she said, you know, take time after a call to go out, take a walk, decompress, like, like think about it, like process. And just that piece of advice, it's so simple, but like, it totally changed. Like my mental health literally in the last six months doing that has just skyrocketed. Like it's been, it's been amazing. And so like, just find that thing, like whatever it is, like whether it's going to the gym, whether it's going for a walk, like prioritize taking care of yourself and it's very much, it's the idea of putting the oxygen mask on before you help other people. Like you have to find that thing and do it consistently. Like don't, you're not in your best place. You're not helping anybody. If you're falling apart, like you have to take some time, go for a walk, get fresh air. Like literally I'll go check. I'm going to do it at 12 o'clock. I right? like at, or at 1230, I'm going to get done with a coaching call. I have, I'm going to get uh, my daughter. I'm going to go walk over and check the mail. It's going to give me 10 minutes outside. Um, it's a five minute walk, but it'll take 10 minutes with a three-year-old. We're going to go check the mail. We're going to breathe some fresh air. We're going to laugh. We're going to joke a little bit. I'm going to come back and I'm going to be reset. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's, that is so important. And it, it's different for everyone. I know art, people that do art therapy. Um, it's incredible. Like some of the, some of the techniques there, some people go and do like horse therapy where they go ride a horse. So they go, you know, take care of a horse and, and that kind of stuff. But I, I think it's not so much what you do. It's just that you take the time to do it. And so often, you know, when you're running a podcast and a business and doing all these things, like to find time to just step away from Zoom and go take a walk outside could be the difference between depressed or revived and replenished and ready to take on take on the day. So whatever it is, just make time for that and don't be afraid to say, I need to push this back or I need to do this at a better time or, you know, always take time to put that oxygen mask on first. Yeah, it's it's so true. And it's sometimes it's the simplest things that create the biggest results. Mm-hmm. It's just consistency, right? And people always ask me, they're like, oh, like, how did you how did you change your life? Like, what was the one thing? And I'm like, well, you're gonna be disappointed, but it was just it was, you know, things like the simplest stuff, like practicing gratitude consistently. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. 
and whatever that looks like for you. But it's, it's one thing that you do for yourself consistently over time. It doesn't have to be, people want these big answers, these big no. revelations to come out of the sky. It's like, well, no, it's the simplest thing that you do over time that creates the results. And like you said, going for a walk is such a great way to just decompress, especially mm -hmm. after we have these like deep conversations, right? And yeah. I'm the exact same way. I used to stack up interviews. I do like four in a row and I'm like, I'm fucking depleted. Yeah. It's two. worse than an eight hour day. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like two for me is, is like, I'm good. I'm filled. I'm depleted at the same time, you know, because like you, you know, we give, we want to give everything to the person. You know, and that that takes a certain amount of emotional intelligence to know that, okay, I'm it's time for me to step back from this and go recharge. It's time for me to take that time. And okay. I don't most people struggle with that. Most people struggle with when is the time to put my phone down? When is the time to go journal, read, pray, whatever it is? But the pattern interrupt of your day is so important. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. Well, dude, I, um, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm really glad that we got to connect. I, you know, I love what you're doing and it's, I just really always like to acknowledge people that I see that are doing work that is so important, hmm. you know, and to share stories is of whatever they may be of, of, of personal transformation and healing of trauma, whatever it is, is so important. And thank you for the work you do, man. Like, honestly, it's, it's really, really important. And um, I just want to acknowledge you for that brother. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I, I echo that back to you. Like you're doing similar things with your show. Like, like it's, it's, especially with the idea of adversity, like people need to see that there is something to overcome and there's something on the other side of it. There's something you know, and that's, that's where the hope side comes in is because when you hear someone's story and, and I hope someone hears that through mine and I know they hear it through your show is that when you hear someone who's on the other side of that scary place, the other part where you, you know, and they're on that side that the person can't see yet, it's incredibly valuable to a listener. And so I echo the same thing to you. I think, I think these kind of topics are necessary because most podcasts focus on the highlight reel, right? It's like, he's like, here's the person that, and tell us how you climb Mount Everest, you know? And it's like, I, I'm sitting here in my, you know, apartment in, in uh, Vegas. And I'm going like, I can't climb Mount Everest, you know, but you want to hear like, what are the things that got them there? What's the mindset changes? What's the, and is there hope on the other side of this mountain that you feel like you're climbing right now? And so I echo that back to you, like showing people that, that level of hope and, and encouragement is, is invaluable. Thank you, brother. If we want to find out more about you, where's the best place to check you out? Yeah. Best place to find me. If you want to find out about the show is just preacher boys doc. So preacher boys, doc on any social channel, just at preacher boys doc. Um, and then the website is preacher boys doc.com. And obviously you can find me on YouTube or Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, the preacher boys podcast. Um, it's the only show called that. So you'll have no trouble finding it. And then uh, my personal socials, I'm sure you'll put in the show notes, um, but it's my name. So it's super long and obnoxious. And uh, Twitter is at the Eric Ski, so E R I C S K I. That's like the one mercifully short handle that I have. So maybe connect with me over on Twitter. Amazing. And it's let me see. It's Eric Skorzitsky. Boom. Perfect. Um, boom. Just Check like it it's spelled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. I know. It's exactly it. 
Yeah, I'll uh, we'll have everything in the show notes for you guys. Make sure to right. check out the podcast for Eric. He's doing amazing work and follow him on social media. And again, we'll have all that in the show notes. So thank you. Much love, brother. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lance. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Make sure to check out Eric's podcast, the Preacher Boy podcast. If you guys are interested in listening, diving into these stories, he's doing such important work. And, you know, subscribe to his or follow him, subscribe to all his stuff. Um, and you know what? He's actually, actually, can you cut that, David? Can we cut that outro? I'm going to do it again. Thanks, everybody. Make sure to check out Eric. Go follow him on social media. Check out his podcast. As you guys can see, he's doing powerful work. And it's uh, it's really important for the world right now that we're in. Also, guys, make sure to go check out, get your tickets for the University of Adversity Summit, May 21st to the 23rd. You can go to my website, lanceecos.com, or go to my Instagram. You can get the tickets there. It's going to be a powerful weekend of transformation. Don't want you guys to miss it. And you guys are going to love it. We got some amazing speakers and yeah, it's going to be great. I love you guys. We'll catch you next time.